Hot Take is brought to you by Lomi. Amy, have you ever tried composting before? I have, and I am not great at it, I have to admit. Um, I usually end up with a really stinky, dirty mess. So I was very excited when Lomi came on the scene. Yeah, yeah. Uh, listeners have heard me talk about abandoning a bin full of worms underneath a bridge, but we won't get into it. <laughs> now I have a Lomi, uh, and Lomi allows me to turn my food scraps into dirt with the push of just a little button. I used it last night. Nice. Uh, Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns scraps into dirt in under four hours. Uh, there's no smell when it runs, and it's really quiet. Um, like I said last night, I was making um, lint souls and cauliflower. Um, <laughs> some people uh, on this recording do not like lentils because something is wrong with them. Um, but anyway, I was making lentils and cauliflower. And you know that like that green stuff at the bottom of the cauliflower, like the little leaves yes. that come with yes. it? Mm-hmm. I'm told you can eat them, but I don't want to. Mm-hmm. So I composted them and I will turn them into dirt and I will use that dirt on my plants. And it's great. That's awesome because I, I, to- I feel guilty every time I throw stuff like that away. Like broccoli yeah. stems is another one. I'm always like, oh, I should try to find a way to use these and then I'm like but I won't I know I won't I'll just like put them in my fridge and then they'll get rotten and gross Oh, I I eat the broccoli stems. You do? Um, Hmm, Yeah, I do. I think they're good. Yeah. They're good for you. Yeah. Yeah. But since I got my Lomi, I throw out way less garbage and that means it's not going to landfills and it's not producing methane. Instead, I turn that waste into this nutrient-rich dirt that I use to feed my plants. Um, And I love my plants, so it's great. If you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make cleanup after dinner that much easier, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash hot and use the promo code hot to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash hot and use the promo code hot at checkout. Food waste is gross. Lomi is your solution. Hey, hotcakes, we're planning a mailbag episode, but first we need a bag full of mail. So we need <laughs> questions from you. Send your questions to hottake at crooked.com. That's hottake at crooked.com. And remember, that's just for questions. Uh, please continue to send all hate mail to Brian Kahn. That's B K A H N at protocol.com. That's right. And you can send us anything, questions about. Who's taller? Who's taller, actually? Um, It's me. Movies, TV shows, um, politics, movement stuff. Mm -hmm. What we have for breakfast. Yeah, whatever. Our cats. Um, (laughs) Oh, right, because you have multiple (laughs) cats now. Yeah. Yes, I do. Anything you want, send it. If we don't know the answer and we want to include your question, we'll at least try to figure out the answer. So, um, So, yeah, don't be shy. If you want to be anonymous, you can note that in your email, too. Send us your questions. We will answer them to the best of our ability. Amy, what's your um, social security number? No, no. Hot take at crooked.com. Send them in. I have never been a big white wine person and especially not in the fall, but after becoming a member of First Leaf, I'm a convert. First Leaf knew exactly what types of whites to send me that felt familiar and delicious and would get me excited about trying something new. 
I love First Leaf because they make it easy to get personalized wine delivered on my schedule right to my door. Since I choose the day that my shipment comes, I'm never stressing out about missing a delivery. And every selection is backed by First Leaf's 100% satisfaction guarantee. I love how I just have to answer a few questions and they just know what I'll like. No more zoning out in the store looking at a hundred different bottles and trying to pick the right one. Give your palate what it really wants with First Leaf. Go to tryfirstleaf.com slash drilled to sign up and you'll get your first six hand curated bottles for just $44.95. That's T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F dot com slash drilled. Tryfirstleaf.com slash drilled. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, Earth Breeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40, 40%, 40%. Go to drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Hey, hot cakes. Welcome to Hot Take. I'm Amy Westerdahl. And I'm Mariana East Hegler. And this is our last episode before the midterm elections are over with. Ah! I yeah. know. But it is. Uh, but as a little ray of hope, uh, there was some good election news coming out of Brazil this week. I know. I can't believe it. Lula beat out Bolsonaro, surprising kind of everyone, I feel like. So that was that was some good news. Genuinely, like good news for the entire planet. Well, he was leading. Like people expected him to win in the first election. Um, right. So I'm just I'm right. glad that the predictions ultimately became true, and hoping for That's a right. peaceful transfer of power and no mm. no funny yeah. business because who knows what yeah. can happen in this world we live in right now. But for right now, true. we're going to take yeah. this ray of hope and we're going to hold yeah. on to it for dear life because that's what's yes. at stake here. So yeah, 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 totally. Um, also this week, another ray of light, Rihanna Gunwright, is joining us. 
Rihanna is one of the, she's the best. She's one of the architects of the Green New Deal. She's the director of climate policy at the Roosevelt Institute. And a second time guest on Hot Take and one of our faves always. But especially around the midterms. Exactly. Always good to hear what she thinks um, because this woman is brilliant. So um, with that, I think it's time. It's time to talk about climate. Welcome, Rihanna Gunn-Wright. It's such an honor to have you. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I, I can't believe it's been two years <laughs> since you were on the show, um, right around this That's time, crazy. too. Um, and, and we're still hearing, actually, some of the same old narratives that progressives are causing Democrats to lose elections. I know that's really tiring for you. <laughs> um, and this is happening even as support grows for progressive values and as progressive politicians win races despite their party's efforts to tank them. And more importantly, progressives actually energize their bases. It's true. Yeah. I mean, I do think there there are some promising turns. Um, I don't know. I know that, like... Looking back even just over the last, I don't know, five years or something, I feel like the way that people talk about climate now in particular is way more through like a Green New Deal lens than it was before. Yeah. You know, people are, are no longer thinking about labor as being totally separate yeah. or, you know, immigration. So that's kind of promising. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. It's still feels like we're we're um we got a lot a lot of room. And there's to grow. definitely lots of promising changes. I mean, even the IRA for like all of its flaws, a lot of the way that the IRA tries to address climate, like through industrial policy, through public investment, you know, even if those investments are tax credits, right? It's A lot of it is very much like it's very clear how the Green New Deal influenced that. Like we're not talking about a carbon tax anymore, right? Like we are talking about addressing um, climate change through essentially in lots of ways, like building things and putting, having the public sector put a thumb on the scale for renewable energy and low carbon goods and that is all very Green New Deal-esque, even if the bill itself has a lot of neoliberal elements. And that's not to say that like we've won. It's more that it's the reason that we have the things that we have, even on climate, is largely because of progressives, even as people say progressives are the reason that Democrats are losing races. They're also the reason Democrats care at all about climate. And so at this mm-hmm, point, I'm yeah. just like, our role is to push, right? Like we push, you build power mm-hmm. and you push. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. most people don't like to be pushed. And that doesn't yeah. mean it doesn't need to happen. And so it is what it is. Yeah, yeah, totally. I know I've heard actually, I've heard lots of people talking about how, progressives are really responsible for the IRA passing yes. too, despite the fact that, you know, they were blamed for being <laughs> the biggest obstacle to it. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. yeah. 
But we're yeah. we're going to talk about the IRA in more detail. But first, we wanted to talk about just like how the midterms are shaping up um, and some of the narratives around some of these campaigns um, and what's missing and what's not. And I know, Amy, you had a question. Yes. OK, this might be a dumb question, Rihanna, but um, I know from just, I don't know, research and reporting and stuff that that. Uh, Republican and conservative groups in general have had a strategy to defend dirty air and dirty water for like 20 years and they still haven't had to use it because Democrats have not done a very good job of promoting the benefits of clean air and clean water. Like there's, there's all these Republican operatives that are like, Oh man, if they ever start talking about clean air, we're done for. Um, And yet I don't see people doing it. And I'm curious if um, you have any thoughts on that or like, or maybe they have been doing it, but the public just doesn't. It's a secret. Grab hold of it. I don't know. I I think they do. Um, I think a lot of people do. I think it is, I think part of a lot of people's sort of just like environmental messaging writ large But I will say, I think there is an increasing focus on talking about or like tying um, climate policy to economic gains and the opportunities there, which again, we did a lot with the Green New Deal. So I definitely get it, Mm -hmm. Um, especially at a time where there's like so much inflation and people are worried about cost of living, talking and climate policy has often like doing anything about climate has often been painted as like just um, a drain, right? It's just going to cost a lot of money and have no discernible upside except um, clean air and clean water, but people don't even say that, right? <laughs> have no discernible upside. Um, so I think connecting it to, you know, these plants that are, you know, going to bring a lot of jobs to places that haven't had um, that level of job creation, concentrated j- job creation in a long time, connecting it to, you know, the building of new facilities, just connecting it to, um, honestly, both the jobs, but also um, images of America as like a builder, right? And Mm -hmm. hearkening back to times where you could make like a really good living and factories, etc. I think that is where a lot of the narratives are turning. Uh, And I think it also can mean like not talking about benefits that aren't directly going to go to like GDP, right? Like it's, you can't really, you can talk about like the health benefits, right? How it might cut down like hospitalization or, you know, healthcare costs, right? That's one way. But really you're talking about something that is just good because it's good for lots of people. It's public. It's, you know, the idea is that like, it's going to benefit us all, right? It's going to, and then not only us all, but it would disproportionately benefit people of color. Like all of those, I think are things that like 
a really strict economic framing of climate as like an economic good can really sort of push aside because those things don't fit into that framework. They're not, they're not quantifiable, right? In that, in those ways, in terms of your wages will go up, right? Or whatever. Uh, And so I think like though clean air and clean water toll really well, particularly among Republicans, um, Mm. like it really resonates the idea of like environmental stewardship. That's why all those strategists. Yeah, like environmental strategy, like stewardship, having clean air, clean water. Like it it resonates like across the board for people. Um, I'll be honest. I think some some people think of that framing as sort of like soft. Yeah. Yeah. Not just soft, but like that sort of old environmentalism, like you do it because it's the right thing to do, which I think is actually Uh never framing Mm. people should give up. You should always be like, you should do things because it's the right thing to do. I wonder if that's like partly informed by the whole, like, I don't know, you know, there's this like this kind of tech bro libertarian thread of like hippie punching in in the climate space right now too that I feel like the mainstream orgs and whatnot are really trying to appeal to you know like yeah totally we can have a technological you know market approach to this that's gonna be great and and none of nothing about clean air and clean water fits yeah I think it's like the over rationalization and masculinization of climate action Mm. um like we do this because it's like the rational thing to do it's the practical thing to do right like this Mm anti-alarmism which is really just patriarchy the other thing is that if you don't there's no such thing as dirty air dirty water if you have lead in your water if you have you know oil in your water you don't have water you have poison (laughs) Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's just go ahead and say that if if your air is like, if you can see your air, you do not have air. You have smog, and yes. that's a very different thing. You're, right. you're not breathing air; you're breathing poison, right? So, yeah. like, let's just right. call a thing a right. thing. But one of the things you touched on, uh, Rihanna, is that if we do these things, they will uh, disproportionately benefit um, Black and Brown people, and not because of anything other than the fact that not doing these things disproportionately uh, takes advantage of those communities. So one of the things that we've been talking about on this show and just like in general in climate discourse is that does that framing or saying that out loud, does that hurt odds for climate action, right? Because we've been hearing that once people heard that COVID was a bigger burden for black and brown communities, white people stopped caring about it. And there's a fear that if we start talking about climate change in that way that white people, a.k.a. powerful people, will stop caring about it. And I wondered if you had thoughts on that. Yeah, I do. I mean, I think just looking at American history, there's always that threat, right? When an issue gets painted as predominantly or like primarily an issue that affects Black and brown people, um, both sort of mainstream attention for it drops or the narrative shifts to one that's like much more punitive, whether that's like welfare policy or criminal justice, right? We've seen it in a lot of places. And so I think that's always a risk, but the Green New Deal, even if you're just looking like in the last five years, there's been a lot of more discussion about climate 
uh, and the ties between climate change and environmental justice and racial justice and how you need to deal with the climate crisis. And I actually think that like that discussion both I think has become a lot more accepted. Like I do think you would be hard pressed to find um, someone who's not a conservative talk about climate without mentioning environmental justice, like at all. Um, uh, but I also think that like more than that, the sort of discussion of climate, like expanding the vision of what the climate crisis means, who it affects, what does it mean to be a climate activist? I actually think that's broadened the number of people who care about it and can see themselves attached to it and actually helped it become much more of like a broad-based movement. And I think that that is been like very powerful and a big reason that we even have the IRA, right? I think it's helped mm-hmm. actually build that pressure. And I think for something like climate where like, where you really have such powerful entrenched, entrenched interests, uh, especially like from fossil fuel companies and industries, um, you really, really, really need mass support and pressure for climate policy to happen. And so I actually think this is an area where that risk, we definitely run that risk, but actually getting more people of color to care, right? Like Mm -hmm. really making those stakes clear uh, and the benefits clear um, and how they will disproportionately benefit people of color, I think is actually important. We just can't, I don't think, play a deeply, deeply inside game when it comes to climate. Like, we don't have the money. Right. (laughs) I'll I'll just say, and I know this has come up in, you know, our conversations, but people of color do care about climate change. They're just not empowered. Yeah. Um, So how do do Mm -hmm. we empower more? And I know that's what you meant. Um, Real quick question, though. What's up Potato's favorite horror movie? (laughs) I don't know. Silence of the Yams, Rihanna. <laughs> Come on. Oh. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like that, um, I feel like what you were just talking about kind of plays into um, what we're seeing in the midterms this year, where you've got a lot of high-profile candidates who've crafted electoral platforms that do seem somewhat climate-informed. Um, and I, I don't know, I just, I wonder, um, I wonder what you think about this shift in how the Democratic Party talks about climate. And the fact that I think it is mostly black and brown candidates that have, have like, re- reframed the messaging in a way that um, that seems like the rest of the party has accepted. Um, whether they give credit for that or not is a different <laughs> story. But, um, but yeah, I just, I don't know. Like, what do you think about this kind of long-held assumption that, that people of color don't care about climate change and how the party's dealing with that and how that's changing? Yeah, so, I mean... 
that's definitely a long-held assumption, even though it's not supported by any research. People of color are more likely to care about the climate crisis. Um, Our electoral system in particular is not set up to accurately represent their voices or empower them. And so we end up really like stuck in a place where we're continually trying to, I'll be honest, it feels like we're continually trying to convince white men of varying ages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yes. that we should do yep. something about yes. this, even as like masses of people who do not look like them would really right. like to do something about it. Um, yeah. And so mm-hmm. I am, I am pleased in, in so many ways Uh, by seeing like black and brown candidates lead that charge, because I think it just reflects um, a reality, which is that people of color, especially indigenous folks, but I think of like black Latinx have really taken the lead often in being like stewards of our land. And I'm just glad to see them lead on that because I think so often, like you said, the narrative is that people of color don't care about climate and that this is a space where like, we really need white saviors who like understand the data Mm. and um, are the real adults in the room to come and handle this very serious situation. I think my enthusiasm is tempered of course, because it's not for me, the question is never just like, will we do anything or won't we, but also how, how are we handling yeah. this crisis? Who is benefiting? Like, is this re-entrenching, uh, you know, unequal power distributions, like the ones that we have, you know, is it the market handling this? Is it the public sector? What are the, those relationships? All of those things are still at play. And so I'm excited, but I recognize that like everybody saying we should do something about climate does not share at least my vision for what that would mean. Absolutely. I'm, I'm thinking about last time you were on the show, you talked about, you know, your grandmother who is not a climate scientist, as I recall, uh, but is very much a climate (laughs) voter and kind of always has been like always, will choose the candidate who's more forward on climate. And so what I think is that a lot of, like, I I like to tell people that I cared about climate before I knew I cared about climate. Totally. Like I I think I talked about last time, like my grandmother, um, you know, until she was in her nineties, she's had a garden, right? Like she's Mm -hmm. planted her own food. She will fight you if she sees you not recycling a bottle. (laughs) (laughs) Um, like she in the ways that she knows how to care about climate and she's from the Gulf South so like she has a lot of memories of like shrimping and crabbing right and her mom having growing um, food and so she's actually the one I feel like really taught me about having respect for the earth. And I remember her talking about, she didn't call it climate change, but like when I was talking about leaving the, like our physical world, she was thinking mostly about like nature and the earth worse than 
she had gotten it when I was mm-hmm. like a little kid and her being worried yeah. about that, mm-hmm. about pollution and whatnot. And so, yeah, I think that's the case for a lot of people. And I think like so many things, often the barrier comes down to language, right? As in, yeah. I, I, a lot of people, I mean, I know that people don't talk about the climate crisis or climate change the way that I do, right? Being in the field mm-hmm. that I'm in, but it doesn't mean that they're not talking about it. So like the ways that I remember hearing about it growing up was a lot of discussion about pollution. Yeah. About and the ozone layer, right? Right, the ozone layer about you know, health-related effects, people getting sick um, from, like, air or... We weren't thinking a lot about water then, but, like, in particular, air pollution. And so I think that when people are talking about that, and now with, you know, extreme weather events, right? Like, that's also a language that people are using to talk about climate crisis. So I often think, like, Especially for those of us who are in the climate movement or work on climate every day, um, sometimes you really have to like get off our high horses and realize that people are talking about it, even if they're not talking about it in the ways that we do. Yes. I think I've maybe talked to at least one of you about this. I've been so floored living in New Orleans and realizing that literally every Black person in New Orleans is a climate expert. Um, and and has a shit ton to teach the rest of us who are out here yeah. pontificating like we know every little thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, that lived experience is a type of expertise. 100%. Um, and, yeah, it needs to be yeah. honored. So, yeah, I, I've been really, really thrilled to see so many Black candidates this cycle owning climate as a central platform. And I feel like those are the ones who are talking about it like head on, not like finding mm-hmm. other ways around it. Or if they do, they bring it back and educate their their constituents about some of the ins and outs of climate change. They might not be feeling, you know, tangibly today about what's coming down the line. And I feel like a lot of the Democrats that came before them didn't really do that. They were just kind of like, well, our constituents aren't really talking about climate change, so we're not going to talk to them about it. And it's like, well, then, you know. It's kind of your job as a communicator. A hundred percent. And I think that just gets back to, I feel like a lot of folks, and I include myself in this in terms of when you work in politics or politics adjacent fields like policy, you can get in a mode where you just sort of scan for the keywords. You know, where you're just waiting, you're looking for people to say the like list of terms. (laughs) And not necessarily listening for comprehension, right? Like really, Mm -hmm. I understand why people do this. Everyone is tired and busy on every level. Of course. (laughs) But it really does, I think, end up in taking for granted how smart the average person really is, especially about climate. Yes. Yeah. You said the last time you were on the show uh, that people aren't stupid. They're just busy. Yes. Um, and that's, yeah, yeah. I, I want you to know, I quote you on that all the time. It's uh, people aren't. I mean, yeah. people, I'm, they just aren't. I'm sorry. It's one of the things that gets my goal every yeah. time, because when you think about even how you, each of us moves through the world, 
especially if you have people that you're taking care of, which most people do, whether that's a child or a family mm-hmm. member, you know, a parent, whatever, you are constantly trying to make choices that will help you and often to a larger extent them live well, right? Mm-hmm. Like no mm-hmm. one's out here trying to be stupid. Right. Right. Like that just right. doesn't right. make any sense. And it just really bothers me the way that I feel like sometimes we will think very highly of how we try to go about the world and conduct ourselves and then not extend that Mm -hmm. same, I guess, grace or consideration to other people. I mean, now there are some dummies out here. I won't lie about that. I mean, sure. But (laughs) I (laughs) I think a lot of people are not. Yeah. I feel like the lived experience thing is becoming more and more important in politics too. Like, I feel like part of the reason that the candidates that you were just talking about, Mary, are good at talking about this stuff is is like, it's not just because they're good at talking about it or because they have particular lived experiences. I think it's also that they're relatable to voters in this way. You know, like, like I, I just, I was talking about this with someone the other day. And I'm like, I just don't think that like, there's a way to talk to voters about like energy prices, for example, in a credible way. If you're someone who has like never, ever experienced being really worried about being able to pay a bill that doubled right. overnight, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> or someone who doesn't even know how to how much your utility bills usually run. Mm-hmm. Is, exactly, exactly. I'm just like, man, I'm sorry, but I look at some of these folks in D.C. and I'm just like, yeah, you have never had to look at your pantry and figured out like 50 ways to cook lentils, friends. You know what I mean? Like, it is not, it's hard to relate to. Oh my God, Amy, get out of my internet search history. I can't, I can't do lentils. I'm sorry. I will be hungry. Between hunger and a bowl of lentils, lentils, I'll be hungry. It's fine. Girl, I love me some lentils. <laughs> I don't understand. I love me I'm some like, lentils. what are these like tiny bean they're, hybrid? They're like, tiny what, what is this? I don't understand. I didn't grow up yeah. eating wow. lentils. I yes. have not acquired the taste. I just truly do not understand why I would want to eat these tiny dry flat beans. I feel incredibly attacked right now. And I'm just going to say this without Googling it. But lentils are a very climate friendly food. We need to eat more of them. Rihanna, how, you feel good about potatoes, right? I mean, I'm from the Midwest. Of course I love a potato. <laughs> you should also love lentils being from the Midwest. But anyway, what disease is the biggest killer of potatoes? Um, I'm trying to think of a play on, like, bird flu. But I can't think of anything. Uh, you give up? Or COVID. No, I don't know. Tuberculosis. <laughs> Tuberculosis. That's actually really good. All right, let's go to an ad break. Hot Take is brought to you by Smile Actives. Mary, you have amazing, beautiful, brilliant white teeth. I, on the other hand, have little tiny corn teeth. And. <laughs> 
girl, are you kidding me? I have a cavity in the front of my mouth this minute. Do you really? You have such a pretty smile, yes. though. I'm always really self-conscious about my teeth. I, I drink a ton of coffee, and I'm always like, same teeth stained? What's wrong? And now I'm less self-conscious because I have been using Smile Actives, which is an amazing product that helps to slowly whiten your teeth. So that's another thing, too, because I definitely have had, I haven't done this myself, but I have had friends who like tried a brightening product that worked a little too good, a little too fast. And that's also weird. (laughs) 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 But Smile Actives, it gets your, your teeth up to six shades wider within 30 days. So it's this gradual process and it really, really works. It helps. Yes. Also, speaking of which, uh, dentist whitening treatments can be prohibitively expensive. Plus, you have and they to hurt. Like, yeah, they hurt. You have to schedule time. You have to deal with like having your mouth weirdly, you know, like pinched open for a long period of time. None of that mm-hmm. is fun. You can just add Smile Active's Pro Whitening Gel to your regular toothpaste, which makes it super easy. You don't have to change your routine. It doesn't take any extra time, and it gives a whitening boost to your favorite toothpaste. I like it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Visit smileactives.com slash hot today, and you can get our special buy one, get one free offer, plus free shipping and handling. That's smileactives.com com slash hot. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Mary, you and I have talked about this many times before. We're both big fans of therapy for us mm-hmm. and everybody else, right? It's fantastic. It's good. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people are getting into therapy, especially in the last few years, but some people still are a little bit hesitant about it. And I think BetterHelp is a nice way to start. When things Mm -hmm. are not working for you, it's normal to feel stuck and a therapist can really help to kind of figure out the cause of challenging emotions, help you learn productive coping skills. It's kind of like a guide to life, but you don't have to worry about them, you know, telling you you're overthinking things or making you feel silly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, telling your business because patient-client confidentiality. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 BetterHelp offers all the benefits of in-person therapy, but it's more convenient, more accessible, and more affordable. Right. It's also better for, you know, social distancing, right? Like That's right. You don't want to run COVID risk or can't run COVID risk, then this works for you. That's right. That's right. It also means that you can access therapy at times that work for you, whatever times those are. That's something that I like about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Importantly, you can break up with a therapist without any awkwardness whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> it's so nice. No I have, song and dance. There's no song and dance. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists that are available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It could not be simpler. I've done this like three times. I have to, and like, 
complete confirm. Could not be simpler. <laughs> um, there's, <laughs> there's no waiting rooms. There's no traffic. There's no endless searching for the right therapist. It's great. No child care. No child well, care. I guess maybe you do. Maybe, mm-hmm. but it's it's much easier to schedule around the time that you actually have available. You can learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash hot take. That's betterhelp.com slash hot take. So I, I think some of our listeners um, might think of you as the woman who wrote the Green New Deal. And I know that um, I know that you take issue with that. So correct them, correct them. Yeah, so I led a team that worked with a number of other people um, to both research the Green New Deal, figure out what could be in a Green New Deal, what shape it could take. Um, and then after the resolution was written based on a lot of that research, then um, went out and tried to sort of help figure out what the next steps for policy that was developed in the framework of a Green New Deal could look like. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about what, I don't know, I guess like what, what, what does the Green New Deal look like today? Like, what are the the ways that it comes up in, in conversation? I feel like it's become kind of shorthand for a certain type of climate policy. Yeah. Yeah, it has. The Green New Deal has definitely become shorthand for a type of climate policy that is very focused on decarbonization, but it's also about creating jobs ideally millions of jobs and also has like a really keen eye on justice, particularly racial justice and environmental justice. Um, But um, a type of climate policy that essentially is not just about reducing GHG emissions, but it's also about reducing environmental inequality is about reducing pollution and is ultimately about helping to rebalance power like through um climate policy because people often just think about like what do we do to reduce greenhouse gas emissions which is very important but because climate greenhouse gas emissions are the result of economic activity right we have a tagline at roosevelt like all economic policy is climate policy. It's about actually how do we address climate change in ways that help right those types of power imbalances so we don't end up here again. Because what we do know is that if power is not concentrated in the hands of so few, particularly (laughs) so few people that don't know what their utility bills look like and are disproportionately white men, we probably will not end up here before again. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. We will make different decisions. And so the Green New Deal, I think, has become shorthand for that kind of like progressive justice minded climate policy, which I mean, a a number of people would argue is not really about climate, quote unquote. But that's something we've been dealing with since the Green New Deal emerged. Um, And now it's interesting Mm -hmm. because the Green New Deal 
I mean, and to be clear, the Green New Deal was never like a single policy proposal. It was a framework about how to approach the problem of decarbonization and what types of policies and projects and areas should be like areas of focus. Um, And so the Green New Deal, I think, has continued to be that kind of framework. It's also now uh, like a movement, right? There are Mm -hmm. a lot of uh, groups that have organized themselves around the vision of a Green New Deal from like the Green New Deal Network, which Mm -hmm. is at the national and state level to like there. I remember, I think they're still in place, but there was like a group of um, like architects and designers who were organizing around a Green New Deal and like the questions that that brought up for how we design uh, do like urban planning and design buildings and spaces, right? And so it's also a movement of folks who are invested in getting this type of climate policy passed. Uh, I mean, it's also like an international movement, right? There's um, Green New Deals in other countries um, that are based on a lot of these same principles. Um, and now in a lot of ways, like, although you know, I think the IRA does not do nearly as much as around the question of power and rebalancing power as we would have liked to see in the Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. It is in terms of industrial policy. um, And like I said, a a approach to decarbonization that is about um, sort of rebuilding a real economy and uh, public investment, et cetera. it is a real antecedent mm-hmm. of the IRA. I also just want to underscore that the Green New Deal is the only even close to a piece of legislation that came close to addressing the science. The Paris Agreement didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Build Back Better didn't do that. The IRA didn't do that. None of those addressed yeah. what the IPCC report said to do. And I also want to um, add, so once the IRA was in play, Um, you found yourself portrayed as an activist instead of a policy expert, right? Like you were everybody's like darling policy expert during the (laughs) Trump years when we were trying to get the Green New Deal. And I just, Mm -hmm. I feel like I know, but I just want to give you a chance to talk about how did that moment feel to you? Um, I still think I'm processing my feelings about this moment. Um, Because on the one hand, it was exciting to see so many of the things that I had talked about for the last three years down to like (laughs) um, what things we should build, like heat pumps, you know, (laughs) and the idea of like building um, the government investing to like help build facilities that would produce low carbon goods um, and how many people could be employed by that, which that resonates for me, even with all the masculinity, the idea still of there being like good jobs available for people in their community without, um, without having to do like a very traditional path that really resonates for me, especially having worked in Detroit where people like you really, I really met so many Mm -hmm. people whose lives had changed because their parents had gotten Mm -hmm. to work in those Mm -hmm. factories. Like that was exciting. Um, 
And so there was some excitement. There was definitely some disappointment because, like I said, um, I felt like the IRA pursued a lot of the means that we fought for. But like I said, without a lot of the same commitment to power or like directly investing in communities Um, Mm -hmm. and renegotiating a relationship with the market. Um, that is more equal. Um, uh, you know, I didn't see a lot of those elements and that was disappointing. And I think some of it was hurtful if I'm going to be honest, because I think a lot of us, not just me, a lot of folks, um, who came behind the Green New Deal, uh, whether they were like economists or activists or, you know, everyday people, a lot of people who this vision resonated with really took a lot of of flack for it for a long time and um, weren't taken particularly seriously. And um, to see that the ideas come to fruition, but then no one actually acknowledged the work that you did to get there, that's hurtful. I can't lie, that hurts. Mm-hmm. And it also was hurtful um, to all of a sudden see um, work that I can, had contributed to and work that I had done that was really about like laying out an intellectual and an economic case and like um, laying out, if not the exact policy, like the backbone and the framework, um, all of a sudden just swept up in being like if it was acknowledged this was the work of like social movements right Um, where it's like it wasn't just that we put pressure like we actually put forward a vision that was based in actual research but it felt like it was that was swept aside and it was sort of like let's get the real adults in the room who by and large were much older whiter and male more male Right. Yeah. Like you put actual research and conceptual yeah. thinking and strategy yeah. like into it, not just like making a cool protest sign. Not that that's not also it's, helpful, you know, not not a slam to people, but like, yeah. I mean, come on. And so it's, all of a sudden that it was like, I, you know, and I lead, I'm literally the director of climate policy at a think tank. And all of a sudden everywhere I was an activist and it was an activist when I it was like critical of the IRA. And that was hurtful because it was like that I didn't become an activist overnight just because I don't agree with all the parts of this, you know? And I think that happened to a lot of people of color in this moment. And I think that even beyond feeling like my own work wasn't acknowledged, I think what was even more hurtful was seeing the concerns of a number of people of color sort of set aside as them just saying no, right? Just saying, no, we don't want to build things. No, we don't, you know, it's just anger. Yeah, they're NIMBYs and it's just anger and they're just saying no. And which is means that like, you're not actually listening. And that was really hurtful because it felt like beyond just the work on the policy a lot of my life since the green new deal has been about 
building, helping to build a much more intersectional climate movement where sort of more traditional climate policy folks were working alongside folks in environmental justice and like really seeing each other as experts equal of equal regard. And to feel like now that this happened, all of that got set aside. And these people who like you sit at the same tables with and you've been talking about building and coalition with now that they don't agree around this policy, they just can't see the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, and they're treated as though they're not as smart and strategic as they were just a few weeks ago when we didn't think we were going to have any policy and you, you know, and people wanted them on like podcasts and whatnot. Like that was hurtful. Like it was, it was really hurtful because it just felt again, like we have to be a movement that can stand together when the stakes are low and when the stakes are high. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, who are we really to each other? Yeah. 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 And like we can disagree, but you Absolutely. there should just be some like respect. Right? And yeah. and right. that it felt like that respect often was getting like lost in the mix and that was really hurtful. Yeah, it was a sucky moment. Yeah. And also I was just a blur. I have an eleven month old child. I don't I was trying to keep up. Hey, you I got a baby. That's it. So I was like Feeling all these feelings and then, you know, wiping somebody's butt. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's humbling. Yeah. It's humbling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, man. It's so true, though. And I, because I feel like even, um, I don't know, like the, one of the things that, that like I, I kept seeing in a lot of the conversations around the IRA was like that we couldn't even talk about big, like, I don't know. We couldn't even talk about it as like a step on the path towards something better. <laughs> you know, it was like, nope, you have to be a, an out and out, you know, booster for absolutely everything in this policy or you're being un, an unrealistic idiot. You know, um, yeah, yeah, the tone policing was unfucking real around that. It's like you I, I don't yeah. do jigs on command. You know, yeah. and like this, this is the same movement that like Rihanna was saying, like a couple of years ago was all about listening to black women. And now all of a sudden mm-hmm. it's trying to control what black women say and trying to force us to celebrate in public. And like, I, I can't mm-hmm. get crunk mm-hmm. about a policy that's going to sell off the Gulf Coast for parts. I just can't. Um, yeah. That yeah. still allows for sacrifice zones. I can't celebrate that. Like, yeah, I can allow it because what the fuck else am I going to do? But to me, that does not constitute a victory. It's better than nothing. Yes. Um, but the bar is on the floor when it comes to climate action. And just like the demand that everybody celebrate this in public because we have to give people hope. Like, I'm sorry, that's, that's bullshit. Yeah, there just was it was a moment where I really did wish there was just more empathy for where in particular, people of color were coming from, you know, mm-hmm. and an allowance of like, why, why people wouldn't be very excited, 
right? And mm-hmm. why they might be angry. Yeah. And the fact that like people are allowed to have big emotions. And I mean, in all directions, but it felt like right. the allowance for people to be overjoyed and happy was there. Right. Like we didn't actually have to right. allow that. <laughs> Like it was happening, but the, (laughs) but allowing people to be angry or feel hurt or let down. Yeah. It did feel like there was a lot of hush that, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. and that was, and that was hurtful or, you know, and just seeing people who, you know, I respect all of a sudden, you know, when they saw someone who was critical, just be like, they're, they're not realistic. They don't get it. And it was like, really that that's the only conclusion you can draw from this. Yeah. I want to bring this back to the election. So as we've talked about here, there's a lot of problems with the IRA, um, but there's also this paradox where it remains true that it's the biggest piece of climate legislation ever. Yeah, and it does do some good things. Like, we all can acknowledge that, too. Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) Just a lot overall. Yeah, so I Mm -hmm. I wonder what are your thoughts um, in this midterm season about how Democrats should own or not own that as a victory in their midterms messaging? I mean, that's hard. I'm I'm not a politician, but I do think, like, Mm -hmm. listen, it passed. Um, The things that are important to communities in it, you should definitely, people should, I think, celebrate that and say why that happened, especially when it happened because of, now I'm not a big fan of tax credits, but listen, it's the public investment we got, whatever. Um, But when plants are being built because of public money, that's important to say, right? Because I just think that the, for a very long time, we have hidden the fact that any sort of public sector involvement in the market and which has allowed people to think that good things that happen in part because of public money were just the work of private, like the company itself. And we just have to push back against that narrative for people to understand why it's important to have a government that will invest in stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that that is, um, definitely um important and so I think yeah to the extent that people want to celebrate it and I think if there are things that folks want to do that move beyond the IRA that fill some of his gaps that they are that's part of their agenda if they are elected I think that's you know that's important to share too but yeah so in short yeah own it um and oh I was gonna say I think it's especially important because this money is flowing through agencies, right? The IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, is not regular order legislation, right? In the sense, it's not, it's like, it's an appropriations bill, essentially, which means that if control is to switch, there is no guarantee that these dollars will do what they're supposed to do or go out <laughs> or much less right. be subject to the kind of tussling that is starting to happen to make sure that they benefit disadvantaged communities as much as possible. Like all of that is not set in stone. So I think that that's also important to let people know, because I think for a lot of people, they don't understand that here's the biggest climate investment. And they think it's like a law in the way that you traditionally think of a law. Yeah. 
Not that it's an ongoing process mm-hmm. that's subject to all sorts of contestations and possibly lawsuits, right? Like it's, it is a thing right. that is going to be ongoing and happening. And it's important that, that folks who actually believe that the climate crisis is a thing are in place so that these investments are actually made. That seems like an incredibly compelling argument for doing everything we can to to keep control of the House, too, right? And also, like, for down-ballot state elections, too, because so much of this hinges on having, you know, people in place at various levels of the government to actually get that money flowing Mm -hmm. in the right direction. Yeah, I think a lot of people just, and not, again, not because they're stupid, but because, like, these things are complex and most people don't explain it. You know, it's not like it's explained on the news, the difference between a reconciliation bill, et cetera. So I just think a lot of folks aren't aware of how unfinished it actually is in lots of ways. I, I want to, like, tie that to the the stuff around the mansion permitting bill, because I feel like, I don't know, I, I feel like there's all there are a lot of narratives around permitting right now that, that um, are very, like, overly wonky and in the weeds. And it's allowing for a lot of um, pretty misleading narratives, I would say, (laughs) like the idea that, oh, you know, progressives just don't want to permit anything. They want no building of anything. Um, And I'm I'm yeah, like I'm curious where you see potential there for for Democrats or progressives to put forth like a, a better, more positive permitting reform option. Like I I like I I also hate this idea that the only way to reform permitting is the way that Manchin tried to do it. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's not the case at all. It's not true at all. I think there's a lot, a lot of room. I think um, the reason the conversation has stopped at the Manchin bill was in large part, like you said, because that was what was put out first and it was attached to the IRA, but there are lots of other ideas. And I think that there is, is definitely space to put those forward. And I think it actually makes sense to take the time to make sure that sort of unlike the IRA uh, communities, especially environmental frontline communities and communities disproportionately affected by environmental injustice are at the table right, and are consulted in a permitting bill. Like, I think we actually have the time now to Mm -hmm. put forward something that's better and is more thoughtful. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. I I mean, I just, I feel like it's been presented as like, oh, the environment, like, you know, these crazy, naive environmentalists want it to take even longer to permit and build things. And it's like, no, there's a way to streamline things that that gives communities more input and fossil fuel companies less input Amen. instead of the yeah. reverse, which is what Manchin yeah. was proposing. And we should do that. Amen. Um, yeah. 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 Um, in our last couple of seconds, uh, Rihanna, why shouldn't you give a zombie mashed potatoes? Because he'll mistake them for brains. Actually, that's the reason you should. Um, I don't know. Why? What? What do your mashed potatoes look like? Um, <laughs> I mean they're soft. The answer, I guess. Uh, but the answer is because they're already a little gravy. 
Great. Oh, that took me a minute to get it. That's too much of a thinker. It's a thinker. It's a thinker. Okay, okay. Well, I know we were arguing <laughs> earlier about lentils, and I know I was right, but how do legume wars <laughs> end? Oh, I don't know. I want to hear this one. Far. What'd you say? Is this a fart no, joke? No, it is not a fart joke. I have never told a fart joke. I love a good fart joke. <laughs> what the? This is how I know y'all got kids. Legume wars in with a peace treaty. Oh, good one. A peace yeah. treaty. Yeah. I got it. I get it. Yeah. I get it. All right. <laughs> Thank you so oh, much so for doing good. this. Rihanna. Of course. It's a joy to have you on. It's good to so. talk to you Thank all. You. Of course. Thank you. Hot Take is brought to you by Birch. I got my Birch mattress back in April, and I've been sleeping like a baby on melatonin ever since. Oh, nice. I like that. Yeah, I know babies babies don't actually sleep all that well. It's true. Um, true. (laughs) um, Birch mattresses are stylish, comfortable, and most importantly, they are environmentally conscious. The non-toxic mattresses are made right here in America and are crafted with natural and organic materials that have been sustainably sourced. Amy, I think think a lot of people don't know is a lot of times their mattresses, their couches, have toxic chemicals in them. That's right. And you're sleeping on it. Ugh. Yeah. 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 That's a lot of time to sleep on something and toxic. Yeah, so it it was important for me to choose a birch mattress that's made with organic and natural materials because unlike synthetic mattresses, the wool in the birch mattress makes it hypoallergenic. I know that the mattress I'm sleeping on is made with raw materials sourced straight from nature, which are both comfortable and durable. So I want to give all of our listeners the ability to enjoy a deep, restful night's sleep with a new mattress from Birch. Plus, Birch knows there's no better way to test out a new mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. That's why they offer a 100-night risk-free trial. Try out your new Birch mattress, see how your body adjusts, and if you decide it's not the best fit, you're welcome to return it for a full refund. But I don't think you're going to do that. Um, They believe so strongly in the quality of their mattresses that each mattress includes a 25-year warranty. 25 years, Amy! Birch mattresses are shipped directly from their manufacturing facility to your door for free. The mattress comes rolled up in a box and is super easy to set up. Birch is giving $400 off all mattresses and two free eco-rest pillows at birchliving.com slash hot. Amy, I know you love that pillow. I Just do. Just want to give you a chance. I really freaking Talk love about them. that pillow. I, I yeah. don't know what's wrong with me that I have such a hard time finding a comfortable pillow, but I do. And yeah. um these things are like my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really Amy's love them. like, she's yeah. like the princess and the pea, but with but with pillows. Just with my hat. Um, that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, quick reminder: that's four hundred dollars off and two free eco rest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. Hot take is brought to you by Aspiration. Mary, I know you know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway because it is something that surprised me, and I feel like people need to hear it over and over again. If you keep your money in most bank accounts, they are lending your deposits out to fund oil and coal projects. Gross. That is so gross. And it's happening. I feel like it's like, I don't know. We've talked about before this this sort of backlash against quote unquote woke capital. It makes me feel like banks are doing this even more now. (laughs) They're like, Mm. oh, no, we don't want anyone to not like us. 
We better invest in more oil and coal. Anyway, Mm -hmm. it is very concerning. It also makes changing your bank account some one of the easiest and most impactful individual actions that you can take on climate. It's fairly straightforward. You can switch right now to Aspiration. Aspiration is a climate-friendly alternative to big banks. You can get an account and a debit card that's built to help your wallet and that's fossil-free. On top of not, you know, building pipelines, Aspiration lets you plant a tree by rounding up every swipe of your debit card. I think anyone who cares about climate change would rather not have their own personal finances tied up in oil projects, right? That would be the preference. That, that would be, be the, the preference. preference. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's an easy change. I think that, you know, if if you have even 10 minutes to to swap over, it's worth doing. Plus, there's no credit check, there's no overdraft fees, and with aspiration, you just pay what you think is fair, even if that's zero, because money mm-hmm. should not stand in the way of you doing the right thing. Make your dollars make a difference. Open an Aspiration account at aspiration.com slash tree and move your money out of fossil fuels. Divest personally, folks. Open your Mm -hmm. account at aspiration.com slash tree today. That's aspiration.com slash tree. Terms and conditions apply. Aspiration is not a bank. Deposits FDIC insured to up to $2 million per depositor. Another pitch for folks to send in their questions to hottake at crooked.com. We need them. We're doing a mailbag episode. Can't do it without a mailbag. Yeah. And a bag full of mail. Yeah. If you are confused about anything from dad jokes to... Just just ask us whatever, okay? You listen to the show. You know the shit we talk yeah. about. Ask us your yeah. questions. If we don't know the answer, we'll make it up. Yeah, or we'll we'll ask someone who might know. Amy Send might. It all. I'll make it up. <laughs> <laughs> Send it to hottake at crooked.com. All right, Mary. It's time to talk about what everyone on Climate Twitter was talking about last week. Soup. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah. So uh, if you've not heard about this, congratulations to you. But um, a couple Mm -hmm. of climate activists in the UK uh, went into a museum and threw soup onto a Van Gogh painting. Um, Mm -hmm. Not too long after that, some other protesters threw mashed potatoes onto uh, a Monet painting, I believe it was. Um, Mm -hmm. And... uh, these both of these protests have come from a group called Just Stop Oil, um, and there were it was a polarizing event, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, uh, people had a lot yeah. of feelings about it. Some people felt like you know, what did Van Gogh ever do to you? And he suffered so much during his lifetime, and now you're hurting his his art. Um, the, no art was mm-hmm. harmed in these protests. Okay, these these right. pieces of art should were, be clear. Yes. were behind yes. glass. Um, so if mm-hmm. there's going to be a problem with this, it shouldn't be about the art getting harmed. Um, but yeah, I know that I said one thing about one of the protests and people got very upset with me. Uh, Amy, you yeah. said nothing. So you start. What do you think? Yeah, I didn't say anything because I honestly, I looked at, at the discourse happening and I just went, whew, too tired for that. I'm yeah. too tired. I got in early. 
<laughs> I got in early. I didn't realize it was going to turn into like this huge thing. I was going to say what's what was interesting about it, though is that I feel like previous times when you know I think like the initial reaction to this was like I don't know that this really hits the audience that you're going for, right? It's like some someone who like works in maintenance is going to have to clean this up. Museums are not like necessarily particularly advancing uh, climate injustice, although they do take a lot of fossil fuel money, to be fair, you know? Um, and there were a lot of people that were like, I don't think this does the, the climate movement any favors, which I feel like in, like, I don't know, I feel like previous discourses around protest, that was kind of like, not that controversial to say, you know, like when Extinction Rebellion, like put the poop in the street or whatever to block, I think, uh, you know, people commuting or whatever. It was like, this is just a pain in the ass for everyone. This isn't doing anything. But this time it seemed like that was controversial, purely based off what I saw happening with you on Twitter. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. um, So uh, my thing was that I felt like it was kind of a missed opportunity. And this type of protest is about, it's it's a performance protest. It's not the same as like marching in the streets or something like that with placards or whatever. So the symbolism matters in these protests. And so I felt like it was a missed opportunity to highlight the connections between colonialism and and climate change, right? So if you're going to be at a protest, like, let's talk about these stolen artifacts, right? Like, not... I I think I like flippantly suggested removing one of them and returning them um, mm-hmm. <laughs> as as a form of protest, which I know is like not easy to do. Um, but having the protest in that sort of context, I think would have been a neater way to tie a narrative and make it clear to the uninitiated why you did what you did. Whereas mm-hmm. pouring soup, like, I don't think most people think of soup and climate change in the same breath. I don't think most people think of Van Gogh and climate change in this in the same breath. So to the uninitiated, I think they might not get the point. Um, and to yeah. be initiated, I don't necessarily know that it does much. However, that said, like, this was done by a couple of kids. And so... yeah. Yeah. I, well, actually, I don't know how how old they are, but by young people, and I they hate the pretty fa- young. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I hate the fact that they are scared enough to do something like that. Um, yeah. While I might think it was a missed opportunity, that sort of turned into like people saying that I was villainizing these kids or shitting on these kids or that I I wanted them to go yeah. to jail because I had a parasocial relationship to this painting. Let me just be very unequivocal. Fuck that painting. I don't care about that painting. At all. I'm sure Van Gogh was a... I, don't, I know, like, jack shit about him. So, like, yeah. I don't know. Sunflowers yeah. are cool, but, like, I don't care about that painting. Um, and so, yeah, it it wasn't all of these... It became this thing that you... Kind of like we were saying earlier about the IRA. It's like you either had to completely yeah. celebrate it or completely shit on it. There could be no in-between. And right. I, I want no harm to come to those kids at all. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I get. I never said that I did. No, I know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I feel like, and I don't know if this was also just stop oil. I feel like it might have been, but like a few days after the soup and the potatoes, there was a guy who glued himself to the desk of a of a like a talk like a news talk show, um, and and sort of called out the media for being complicit in a lot of climate delay in a way Mm -hmm. that I was like, see, now this is something that I feel like is um, 
I don't know, like a little bit more straightforward. It's easy for people to understand. It's also like actually interrupting, like he actually interrupted a, a TV news anchor from mm-hmm. doing the thing that he was criticizing the media for doing. Um, and then it was also like, it was, I think, visually compelling too that this guy ended up being like carried off of the set because he was literally glued to half of it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, I don't know. I just, I feel like... I'm not sure. I'm not sure what to make of it because, on the one hand, I think that, you know, you like, you don't want to have a, a, a like a, a performance piece or, or a protest turn off, you know, so many people like turn off people that would otherwise be, you know, um, allies of yours. But at the same time, like you were saying, like, I feel like, look, these are kids who are scared and they're they're doing whatever they can to try to raise, you know, some kind of awareness or be disruptive or whatever. Right. Um, and I think also, like, the jury's out on, you know, there's been actually some research done on what is and isn't effective as a protest tactic. And, you know, it's a lot of people were debating that, too, like, oh, you know, like trying to sort of say objectively this is or isn't effective to do protests this way. And it's like, eh, like it kind of depends. It depends, right? So like, you know, it remains to be seen. One thing that is pretty unequivocal in the research on on climate and activism, though, is that like, you know, we are getting to a place where large-scale protest and disruption is kind of like – what's needed to move the needle. Like, I I think that um, there are a lot of signs pointing to that, both in the research and just in how especially young people are feeling. So I suspect we will see more protests that people will, you know, have some feelings about. And (laughs) yeah, I mean, the thing is, no protest is perfect and no protest is above reproach. And we need to be able to have those sorts of conversations and those conversations require nuance. um, And Twitter is where nuance goes to die. And so things just kind of get spiraled out of hand because, you know, flattened. Right. It's like like, you either love it or you hate children. What? No. Like, how did we get here? How do we get yeah. here? Like, people are, like, yeah. my favorite form of Twitter is when somebody quote tweets you and takes literally any kind of nuance out of your tweet and makes it say something completely different. And you're like, that's a whole other ass sentence that I did yeah. not say. I don't know who you're quoting, but whatever. It's it's just annoying. Especially, like, in your case, because I feel like that it's such a good point to say, like, if you're going to do a protest at a museum... And it's a climate protest at a museum. How do you not talk about colonialism? You know, it's right there. It's right there. <laughs> it's just but right again, there. Yeah. but again, these are these are you know maybe they haven't gotten to that point in their climate analysis, and this is what they felt like they could do. And that's yeah. I'm not mad at that. I just feel like yeah. it was a missed opportunity, but it's an opportunity to try again, and we need to be able to talk that's about right. those things, right? So. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. but I know one person who is not on Twitter, but absolutely would have hated the soup protests. <laughs> Brett Stevens. Yes. This guy yes. uh, kind of kicked off his career as an op-ed writer at the New York Times with, an, with a column called 
climate of absolute certainty where he was basically shitting on climate activists for how sure mm-hmm. they were about climate change and how alarmist they were right. about climate change. And just right. uh, last week, he came out with another column where somebody paid for this man to go to Greenland and see the melting ice for his damn self. Like, And, and so <laughs> yeah. now he believes in climate change again. Before, he yeah. was a climate skeptic. Now he accepts climate change. But... We don't need mm-hmm. alarmism. Right. Yeah. He basically did in this column, like, I don't know. It's almost like, like there's a, um, there was a paper that came out a couple years ago about the, the tactics of delay. So um, a group of social scientists and economists looked at kind of like how the, the climate denial narrative has evolved into delay, right? And they categorized all the messages and they made this handy chart. And literally, Brett Stevens hit every single point on the chart mm. in this one column. It's like, wow. It's, I mean, yeah, like, just, it's like, you know, it's not that bad. Even if it is that bad, the solutions could be worse. Uh, we're out of time to really do that much about it. Um, I mean, it's just like, it, I don't even understand how, like, in one column you go through that many kind of leaps in, in logic, but he, he pulled it off. Well, what's crazy to me is that he needed to go to Greenland to see the ice melting. He couldn't come to Mm -hmm. Louisiana and see the coastline eroding. Right. He couldn't look at Hurricane Ida. He couldn't look at Hurricane Maria and see it. Right. Like he can't Mm -hmm. see it when it's people in when it's black and brown people suffering. Right. So his column is still positing that we can adapt our way out of climate change. But where's Mm -hmm. the adaptation for the victims of the Nigeria floods, for the Pakistan floods, for the Australia fires of 2020 that Mm -hmm. almost everybody seems to have forgotten about? If we were going to adapt, how do we adapt backwards? How do we adapt to what's already been lost? If you think adaptation Mm -hmm. is the only solution to climate change, then you think it's still a future problem. And it is a future problem for somebody like Brett Stevens because his power and his privilege Mm -hmm. keeps him protected from the effects of it today. And so adaptation for who and when? Yeah. 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 I also, I was reading it and he's like, this guy invited me to go to Greenland two years ago, but, you know, I couldn't go right away because of COVID. And then he goes through this whole thing of how COVID made him think like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be so certain that like my take on this is right, which, okay, that's good. A bunch of, like he quotes several scientists throughout that you can tell are trying to very nicely explain to him that like, this is not a thing that's going to happen little by little, which I feel like we're all seeing and have been seeing for a while, but this is news to Brett Stevens <laughs> that, that it doesn't happen incrementally and that it might not be this like slow progression that we even have time to adapt to. It's right. it's like, that's the part that was bizarre to me about this too. It's like, okay, you're quoting all these people who are saying this and yet your takeaway is still, but we have time to adapt. So like, it's going to be fine. Don't worry. And it's like, okay. Yeah, it's just all of the things, right? It's like, who's the we adaptation for who? Yeah. And like, this this is not something that's 50 years away or more. Exactly. Um, and this also yeah. comes back to my biggest problem with it is that how is old boy 
qualified to be shaping opinion in the nation's paper of record. Like, from jump, he was a climate skeptic. From jump. So, like, Mm -hmm. you're out here not believing in reality, but you get to shape how people think about it. You, your opinions are worthy of being paid to write. How is that, it, like, how okay. is that possible? So I'm going to write a column talking about how gravity ain't real. And let's see where I get hired. It's crazy to me. Like, I wrote a, like, I, I feel like I was more fact-checked for a, an, an opinion piece I wrote for the New York Times about my own life than <laughs> Brett Stevens was about the climate crisis. And I'm not even exaggerating. Like, seriously. <laughs> I don't get it at all. And yeah. it's just, the the fact that Homeboy went to Greenland and told the ice sheet to debate him is fucking wild to me, right? Like, how privileged is that? That it's like, I won't believe in climate change until it makes itself manifest in front of my face at this exact way. You and, know? And until, until a bunch of European scientists mm-hmm. tell me exactly where the ice used to be and where it is now, right? I swear. I, it was like, and then a, a Danish scientist, you know, right. showed I, me this. And then, you know, Fjord Fjordersen showed me where the ice used to be, you know? And I'm just like, okay, Jesus. I know. And as as Kendra Pierre-Louis pointed out to me on Twitter, uh, he didn't talk to a single Greenlander while he was there. No, I know. I know. It's it's like... Like, climate change has to announce itself to me specifically in the way that I will accept it, right? Like, nothing else counts. And, like, how privileged do you have to be for that to be the case? Yeah. And for you to get paid for that. Yes. And I honestly, I feel like he was expecting like a round of applause for this. Like he's like, okay, you guys, I have been open to new information and I have exercised the kind of intellectual humility that I have suggested for all of you. Please clap. (laughs) Please clap. And also, I believe in climate change now, but I also really believe in the market's ability to fix it. Oh, so you think markets... The same thing that sold slaves is going yeah. to fix climate change, right? Like, they tried to let market fix slavery until they feel, they realized that slavery was the market. They tried to let the market fix climate change for the last 30 years. It didn't work. It didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work. Yeah. You know, we still got half the country with singed trees. It's you know? crazy to me. And, like, it like, gets what, worse like, every fucking wow, year. So- yeah, like you've come around to literally the solution that was proposed in like the early 90s. Wow, what a like what an amazing feat, Brett. Why does he still have a job? That's the thing. I do it's not like know. you can be a dipshit off somewhere thinking some dumb shit. And I I you know, I think it's great that he changed his mind about the existence of climate change, but why why do you still have a job though? <laughs> That's what I, I don't get know. it. I feel like it's all in this in the service of this, like, false equivalence, you know, proving that they're not biased thing. But, like, to me, I just feel like, I don't know. It just, it's, it's, I don't understand how you can let someone write things that are not true and then just pawn it off as, like, oh, well, that's his opinion, so it's fine. You know, like, I, I don't, I don't get it. 
I have so many wrong opinions, New York Times. If you if you are accepting pitches, I will fill your pages with wrong opinions. Okay? Like lentils are the supreme legume. And and that's not even an example of my wrong wrong opinion. That's an example (laughs) of my very correct opinion. Um, And Mm -hmm. I will write Mm -hmm. a manifesto about it. Beans are the magical fruit by Amy Westervelt. I'm just kidding. (laughs) This woman is in her 40s, y'all. She's in her 40s. It's a grown-ass woman. I can't help it. Um, yeah, I just, I'm like, I don't like it. it you know, the thing that kept making me think of is like, okay, the New York times would pretty easily, I think, I hope say no to someone who was like, COVID was just a hoax. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. How is this different? I don't understand. I do not understand. Or someone I mean, that was like, you know, I don't know. Vac- the vaccine's. The jury's still out on whether the vaccine. I don't know what Brett Stevens wrote about COVID. He may have said those exact things, but he has this really deep, visceral, um, you know, resentment almost of alarmism. Like he's he Mm -hmm. thinks alarmism is so beneath him. And again, that's coming from a really privileged place because as a very privileged cis straight white man, he has no natural predators. You know, right. so like he to him, yeah. alarmism is like the thing that vulnerable people do. I don't even know if he's conscious right. of this, but like women, people of color, children, those are the people who are alarmist because right. they there actually are things out to get them. But he sees right. that as beneath him as as this mm-hmm. white man. And it's like that is patriarchy, because when he says alarmism, what he really means is hysteria and hysteria yeah, is right. feminized to him. Yeah. I kept thinking that the whole time I was reading, I was like, wow, this, it feels again, like this thing of, you know, don't have emotions, Mm -hmm. don't react, um, you know, over and over again. But also I was like, oh, like I keep seeing white men do this in public over and over again, like realize that there's, there is this threat that will actually threaten them too. And like this very slow dawning, realization of like oh like they go from nope it's not happening to wait a minute it is kind of happening but it won't affect me to like uh uh-oh is it actually gonna maybe affect me what do we have to do so it doesn't affect me right (laughs) right like it's like let's all band together to save me (laughs) it is that the first like you know it is the first time that a lot of these people have dealt with any kind of real threat or, you know, a system that doesn't give a shit about whether they live, right? Like, you know, and it's like a real rude awakening. They're just like, excuse me, what? Um, Right, right. And a lot of them have not gotten the message yet. So, you know, am I mad at the soup protest? No, but I'm pretty fucking pissed at Brett Stevens and generally the New York Times. Yeah. I'd like to throw soup at the New York Times. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Hot Take is a Crooked Media production. It's produced by Ray Peng and mixed and edited by Jordan Cantor. Our music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Leo Duran is our senior producer. And our executive producers are Marianne Hegler, Michael Martinez, and me, Amy Westervelt. 
special thanks to Sandy Gerard, Ari Schwartz, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landes for production support, and to Amelia Montooth for digital support. You can follow the show on Twitter at Real Hot Take, sign up for our newsletter at hottakepod.com, and subscribe to Crooked Media's video channel at youtube.com slash crookedmedia.com. 